Jared, I, I have, I have to laugh because, what was the first song again? No, the very, the one right after the graduation thing. Your name alone can save. Did you guys um, see Nora when we were singing that song? Okay, so here's here's the song we sang. Your name alone can save. It says the words say you. When we were dead in our transgressions, Jesus, you came to bring us back to God. You canceled the debt that stood against us, setting aside, nailing it to the cross. Now with joy, we can proclaim, you overcome the grave. You took our curse away. There's no other name by which we're saved. And up, Nora was, you know, doing, like, doing that kind of stuff. But you can kind of feel the tension as an adult. Like, stop that kid. Stop that kid. Straighten that kid out. Don't you understand? We're singing about joy. <laughs> you know, like, I'm thinking when we get to heaven, Jesus will walk up and the chorus will be holy, holy, holy. So this is, we'll have to sing like this. We'll, we'll, see, him come, we'll see him come to the throne. Holy, holy, holy. I, holy, holy! You know, we won't be able to hold it in. And I just feel, thank you for letting Nora do that, actually. Because that, yeah, thank you. That's... That's all right by me. That was so, Callie. Don't feel bad. I know. I, I felt cut. Nora, drain your. It's okay. We're singing about joy. Joy's a good thing, isn't joy a good thing in church? It's kind of a good thing in church. I, so thank you for letting her be joyful, Callie. Even though it gave you a heart attack, it was great. I want to. Uh, I want to begin just to talk about speaking and writing and teaching for a second. And I just want to talk about how important the whole idea of similes and metaphors are. I can remember in fourth grade when I learned about similes and metaphors, and they were just boring, dead, just dead. You know, grammar, punctuation, and tools like similes and metaphors, how boring can you get? But really, when it comes to teaching, metaphors are so, and Karen, aren't they important? See, there's a true teacher. You, yes, yes. So, so if I get up here and I teach about joy, I can say you need to be joyful, or I can say look at Nora Doty. Ah, yes, that's an incredible metaphor. If I talk about faith or hope, ah, it's, it's hard to get your mind around, but if you tell, a, tell an example, you get it. If I tell you about what love is, okay, I'm supposed to love, but I say, you know what love looks like? watching Anne of Green Gables with your wife. That's love. And you're like, yes, I get it. Self-sacrifice, dying to yourself, willing to be destroyed. No. But you'll understand what I'm talking about. Actually, I was at a graduation ceremony on Tuesday for my niece in uh, Cornerstone, and Joe Stoll, the president of Cornerstone, gave this great illustration about wisdom. He said, all right, graduates, I want you to, to learn wisdom. And he said, there's a vast difference between knowledge and wisdom. He said, have you ever played the thousand-piece puzzle, and you take that puzzle, and you throw it all over the table, and you have all those pieces? He said, that's knowledge. That's knowledge. He said, but you know the box top where it shows the picture you're trying to put together? That's wisdom. It's like, oh, that little illustration speaks volumes. Knowledge are the facts. Wisdom is the grand design. So when we pray that God would give us wisdom, what he's saying is wisdom for the grand design for your life. One simple little metaphor brings it all together. Today, we're, we are going to talk about 
one of the toughest, I think the hardest concepts to talk about. And God is going to give us a living metaphor. And this living metaphor is going to be all about sin and what sin is like. Because sin, sin is the reason we aren't in heaven yet. It's still got to be dealt with. And so to talk about this, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 26. And so the title today is Sin, Oh, the Horror of It. Because I really don't think we are, I think we're just fine with it. And God doesn't want you to be just fine with it. And so he's going to give you a living metaphor. And then he's going to talk a little bit about the answer for it. So let's uh, pray first, and then we'll start in verse 12 of chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this day. I do. I thank you for Nora. I thank you for the life you give children and just how they, uh, we, are, we, we sophisticate sometimes joy out of our lives. And that's a shame. Help us, God, to um, embrace the beauty and the excitement of life. Father, but I also thank you for this Bible, this word, its nourishment to our souls. And today is a topic we would rather avoid. But we can't because it's killing us. Thank you for this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. Last week we just found when Jesus called Peter to follow him to become fishers of men. So we begin in verse 12, and it says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell down on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate, desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, would come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise Pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So as I said last week, 
Jesus really begins his public ministry. He calls his disciples. And the first lesson in Luke may be the most important lesson of all. He's going to show them what is killing all of us, what is at the root of our main problem, and that is sin. He's going to talk all about sin. But before he deals with sin, God brings, I think, in this in the way he's designed Luke, in the way he's written the text, he brings a living metaphor, a man with leprosy. I mean, he, it says in verse 1, he's full of leprosy. So probably from head to toe, he's riddled with it. And personally, I think the hardest concept in the world to understand for us is just how serious sin is. And so... To describe it, God brings a man in full of leprosy to show us just how bad it is. I think part of the problem why sin is so hard is because it knows how to disguise itself. We don't see it as horrific as it is. We start snuggling up to it. We believe sin is not that bad. And actually, after a while, when you indulge in a lot of it, it actually is a good thing. As Isaiah 5 says, the culture sometimes will get so immersed in sin, it'll get so used to sin that everything is turned upside down, where the good becomes bad and the bad becomes good. But I don't think that could happen in our culture. No, not at all. The problem with sin is not only do things become bad, things become good, but we start even bragging about our sinfulness. People write songs about it. George Thorogood, I'm bad to the bone, man. Grateful Dead, I'm going to hell in a bucket, but at least I'm enjoying the ride. I had a uh, roommate my first year in college would listen to Running with the Devil by Van Halen. He'd just listen to that all the time. And he'd sit there with his headphones on and just think he was so, it's so cool to be sinful, isn't it? It's so cool. Miley Cyrus came out with a song two years ago. We can do what we want. We can kiss who we want. We run things. Things don't run we. Isn't that? That is so cool. That is, that is just so cool. And even what's worse than that is I would say recently in the last 20 years, popular theologians like Spencer Burke, Brian McLaren, even Joel Osteen, are starting to teach a sin as something that is relatively unimportant and outdated, as if we really don't need to address it. And, and even there are articles written that say this, why doesn't God just forget about it? Just let it go. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Why doesn't he just say, you know what, that sin thing, I'll give you a pass on it. Why doesn't he just do that? There's a lot of arguments and articles. You wouldn't believe it, as if sin really doesn't matter. God needs to chill out. God needs to chill out when it comes to sin. He makes too big a deal about it. So the question is then, if you're God, how do you fight this laissez-faire attitude where it's just like, it's no big deal? I mean, really. It's no big deal. ISIS, no big It's Yeah, it's not here in America. No big deal. You know, um, the porn industry might be multi-billion dollar industry. No big deal. It's, it's, it's not, a, not a big deal. How does God fight against it? He uses a metaphor for you to see it, smell it, taste it. 
And the living uh, metaphor he's going to choose is so hideous, is so hideous, you would have to be a fool to brag about it. It's leprosy. See, the current culture at that time didn't have modern medicine like we do now where penicillin fixes all kind of stuff. But they had leper colonies. They had friends, brothers, sisters they would send off because leprosy was a horror. And so here, this is supposed to shock us. Verse 12, if you read it, as a Jew, it, you, sh you should be familiar with this. It says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. If you've ever lived in a third world country, if you've ever been overseas and seen just people living on the streets, gypsies or... If you've ever been on mission trips where people come from shanty towns, I mean, people in shanty towns with cardboard as their houses are bad, but the leper of the shanty town, it's bad. They aren't even human. And so when you read this, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man, disfigured, unwanted, dirty, full, reprehensible of leprosy a man's legs with leprous sores. Digits falling off. Feet, toes, no more. Noses coming off. Seeping wounds. S smelly clothes. Here we find Jesus in an undisclosed town walking and a desperate man, a hideous man, a horror comes up to him. Actually, leprosy, if you go to Leviticus 13, you'll have to turn there, but if you, that's where you find leprosy and leprosy in chapter 14, how you cleanse it. But it's a term for any wasting skin disease. The normal skin disease of leprosy that you're probably familiar with is the idea that leprosy is a disease where you no longer have feeling. And if you don't have feeling and you get a cut, you don't know you have a cut. And when you don't know you have a cut, that cut gets infected and it starts gangrening and you just have to slice off the digit. It destroys the nerves on the ends. And then all kind because you don't feel anything, you don't disinfect. So you get boils, you get scabs, you get viruses, and they just eat away. But in Leviticus 13, it says this term leprosy includes anything that on the skin that has an eruption, a red swelling, a spot where that spot, the hair turns white, or it's a spot that is, goes deeper than the skin, or it's open and bleeding, seeping, festering, spreading, raw, and swelling. If it covers the whole body from head to foot, and it has boils or leaking sores, that's leprosy. Or if the skin seems burned or it itches, and it causes the hair on it to turn yellow and thin. Or if it causes the white of the eye to grow gray, dull yellow, where it's coated, and there seems to be no healing, he's to go to the priest, the priest examines him and says, unclean, unclean, and any time a leper gets near you, he's to yell that, so you stay away. This is a bad disease. This isn't something to brag about. Dude, hey, hey man, I got leprosy last week, huh? At least I'm enjoying the ride. What? What's wrong with you? Hey, I've decided to make leprosy my lifestyle choice. 
What's wrong? What's wrong with you? Leprosy isn't cool. Leprosy's hideous. It's a horror. Listen to Leviticus 13, 40, 45, and 46 up here. The leprous person, and I want you as I read this, imagine if you get this disease and you know this is your fate. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out. He covers his upper lip because he doesn't want to spit or have any of the virus spread. He puts it over that. Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. What does that mean? Well, he's unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That's what that means to be unclean. Life is inside the community. When you get leprosy, you're gone. He shall remain estranged from his family, from his friends, and from his community as long as he has the disease. He's unclean. He lives alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That means he's going to be life on the margins, unwanted and forgotten. Back in the day, they didn't have psychotherapists that would say, do you know what emotional damage that is doing to the leprous person? You have to accept him. No, they're saying, I don't want it to spread. I don't want it to spread. Well, it's not his I know it's not his fault, but it's not. If it spreads, everybody else in the community is going to get it. This isn't a game. This condition is meant to picture for the reader the reality of sin, which is described vividly in Isaiah 5 and 6. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Rebellion is the root of sin. Where I don't want to do what God says. I don't want him in my life. I can do everything on my own. I'm independent. And that, that position or that attitude is what causes all of the other things to destroy our life. So Isaiah says the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. What that is also attributed to in Romans chapter 3 is man's natural state outside of Christ in his heart. We're leprous. Leprosy as a metaphor is meant to shock us into understanding the seriousness of sin. God hates sin, yes, because he's just. He's just. He hates sin because his word is unbreakable, meaning, he says, if you sin, you shall die. It's a promise. His word's unbreakable. But also, I would say on the emotional side, not just on the theoretical or the intellectual side, on the emotional side. God hates sin because the people he created in his own image, his own image, the apple of his eye, will be corroded if you let it in, like leprosy. It says it alienates us from God and others. Have you ever seen somebody that you love sin and, and you just don't know how to talk to them anymore? It's, it, it gives breaches and you don't want to talk to them. And you love them, but... You can't embrace it. It alienates. 
Satan loves to send it in there because he knows it's going to divide and conquer. Sin isolates us. Sin damages and disfigures us. Sin ruins hopes. It ruins dreams. It ruins ambitions. I was on a men's retreat three days ago and I was just talking about how God is just so merciful. And this guy is saying, I, I can't even tell you. I, I was sinning against my boss and they, they're going to fire me. My whole livelihood is going to lose my salary. Thought I'd never make it again. And I, I don't know how, but God forgave me. My wife forgave me. But I can't. My boss still doesn't trust me. He's, he's, he didn't fire me. But pretty much said I can't go any further in this company. Sin ruins dreams. Sin complicates and spreads, never stopping, only poisoning the good, polluting the healthy, weakening the strong, disfiguring the beautiful. If you're a pastor, i got to tell you, this is one of your jobs. And it's, it's abundant. Sin is, leprosy is abundant. Some of the worst cases are when you've got to deal with a husband and wife and they hate each other because sin is encroached. Or you see a parent whose child lost their innocence and it just rips off their soul. It's not a game. It's not a game. Like a mother hearing her child has leprosy, sin causes major violations. It's a horror. Don't get near it. It's unclean. That's why God uses leprosy as a metaphor. If you don't think leprosy is bad, go, let's go back into verse 12. And just look at the heart of the man with leprosy. The first thing is the conditional leprosy. Now look at the heart of the man with leprosy. And it says when he saw Jesus, when he saw Jesus, like he saw hope. He saw hope, but he was so desperate that he fell on his face and he begged him. He begged him. And this word beg means to, to be, I want to be let out of my prison. Let me out. Help. Sin has the same effect on us. Psalm 32 says sin can make it feel like your bones are groaning all day long. Dry up like a, can dry up a person's strength. Psalm 107 says sin can cause a man's soul to faint, a person to feel like he's stuck in deep darkness, to reel and stagger like a drunken man. Job says if I wash myself with snow, and if I cleanse my hands with lye, Yet you will still plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me, and I loathe my life, all because he knows this condition of sin. It's leprous. kills us. And so what Job wanted is what the leper wanted, and what we all want. We want to be clean. Look at what the man said to Jesus. He said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Ah, clean. You go to a men's retreat all weekend long. You sleep next to Jared Doty. He doesn't use any soap. <laughs> you get dust in your, in your pores and in your eyebrows and in, in your ears. And 
your all of your clothes smell like fireside camp. And then you go into the shower and it all wipes away. You're clean. That's what every soul that's full of sin is desiring, is to be clean, to be washed. And the way you're washed is through the word called forgiveness. Forgiveness is God's gift. And it's an amazing gift. And this man knew the only hope he had for forgiveness and for wholeness was standing right in front of him. Look at 13 and 14. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus, out of compassion, this is an amazing statement. You might have heard this if you've ever heard this preached. It may be one of the most compassionate lines ever written. It said, out of compassion, he extended his hand, and he did what no other man has done for years. He touched him. He touched him. You don't touch a leper. Jesus touched a leper. He touched the man. I had uh, went to Moody Bible Institute. One of my best friends, his name was uh, John, married one of one of another one of the Moody students, and um, they went. They became missionaries over in the Indonesia area. When they were over there, they became missionaries next to a garbage dump, and they had kids that lived on a garbage dump. That's where they got their food. And they would invite their ki those kids to come and have Bible study. And the, the people in Indonesia are like, "What? you can't have those kids in your house. They're dirty. Don't touch them. And they said, well, we just ask them to take their shoes off. We have this special powder that will kill any lice, disinfects them, and we let them in. We let them in for three, four hours. Seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old girls who live on a garbage dump. This girl Cindy led two of them to Christ. One of the most amazing stories is Cindy couldn't have a baby. And she just was desperate. She didn't know what to do. She had that Bible study. Those four girls came over, and she's kind of wiping her tears. And one of the girls said, why are you crying? She goes, I can't have a, I can't have, I'd love to have a baby. I can't have a baby. And the girl said, why, why can't we just pray for you? Can we pray for you? She's like, you want to pray for me? And they said, yeah. They, they put their hands on her. They prayed for her. A month later, Cindy got pregnant. But she touched them. She let them in. Jesus wants to let you in. If you're sinful, he's not, he's not angry. He wants to come close and touch you. He's an amazing God. He's the God that longs to come near. He meets you in places where no one else will dare. He doesn't run from you when you're caught in your shame. And in a sense, he's the only one left. In Hosea chapter 2, one of the most stunning books in all the Bible, God had Hosea, the missionary, marry a prostitute, and they had a baby. And he used this, this prostitute as an illustration for his love for Israel, or people who rebel. And he said, I let her go, be ravished by her lovers, and they got so ashamed of her, they ran. And so you know what? There was no one left but me to love her. We imagine God not wanting us in our sin. Oh, we failed him again. What Hosea says is in a sense, sometimes he lets us get so far in our sin that he's the only one left that loves us. Nobody else would touch the leper. 
Nobody else in the community went the leper around. Jesus touched him. And if you feel like nobody, there is nobody, I mean nobody that wants you around, Jesus will touch you and cleanse you. So Jesus makes him clean, and then he says, if you keep reading, verse 14, he charged him to tell no one and go show yourself to the priest. Make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded. The, the guy didn't do it. I think he's just too excited about it. I, I mean, imagine finally going home. I'd go right home to my mom and dad. But, but the, there is what's called the cleansing, the, the Levitical cleansing codes of Leviticus 14. So if you feel the leprosy is done, it's not spreading, and your body's repairing itself, you go back to the priest. The priest examines you. After his examination... He tells you to get two live, clean birds for your offering, one in a clay pot and one in this hand. The one in the clay pot, you take it over a stream and you kill the bird in the clay pot. The idea is that the river this, over this creek goes through the bird, which illustrates cleansing. Other scholars say it's the Holy Spirit's cleansing. But that bird that you killed represents your old, dead life. You take hyssop. Hyssop is a wild, it's, it's like a wild vegetable that grows, but it it's kind of, it can be like a brush, and you take this scarlet yarn. I don't know why scarlet. Maybe it represents your sin. You dip it in that blood of that dead bird, and you sprinkle the leper seven times, which represents you're covered. Your sin's been paid for. It's covered. You take that live bird and let it go. Then the priest shaves you, shaves all your hair, shaves your eyebrows, your you're bald, you go home for seven days, and you sit outside your tent to see if that leprosy is definitely gone. Take all your clothes, burn them up, get new clothes. Then on the eighth day, the priest comes back. And then if you are healed, you offer two lambs. Then he takes from the, burnt, the sin offering, blood from the sin offering, puts blood on the earlobe, right earlobe, right thumb, in the right big toe. There's only one other time this was done when the Levitical, the Aaronic priesthood would be dedicated to the temple. This is the leper finally being dedicated back to God. What does the ear represent? It represents truth. Now I am not going to be rebellious, Isaiah 50. I'm going to let God now guide me. It's an issue of truth and understanding and wisdom. Faith comes through hearing. What is the hand? I no longer am going to offer works of rebellion. I'm going to offer works of righteousness. Romans 6 says I need to now be a slave to righteousness. Quit rebelling. Stop it. I've been cleansed from a hideous disease. I don't want to get it again. Stop that. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. I am now going to offer my body as a slave of righteousness because I've been cleansed from the most hideous disease ever. And then the final thing, the toe, people say the toe represents the path that you walk, the decisions you make, and you're going to walk in peace. I was reading at the men's retreat, Ephesians 4, that talks, talks about the new, the new believer. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called. Be different. All of this, this leprosy, this cleansing, is all an image of sin. When Jesus forgives us, we are no longer to live in rebellion. We are to be led by the truth. We are no longer to do unrighteous acts. We should be driven to do good works. And we must now walk in peace, always declaring the salvation of our Lord. He cleansed me. Set me free. Well, the next story goes into a theo theological discussion of how can Jesus cleanse sins. This is a big deal. If you notice on verse 17, it doesn't talk about where he's teaching or when he's teaching. It says on one of those days, it's kind of just as vague as verse 12, in some one of the cities, it's, you don't know where it is, it's the, the concept is what Jesus wants you to get. Or the writer Luke, he says, he's teaching, there were Pharisees there. Those are experts. Those are sanctified ones, very holy. And teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So by this time, everybody knew about Jesus. Everybody heard about him. The power of the Lord was with them to heal, meaning he was filled by the Holy Spirit. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So they, this paralyzed guy wanted to go see Jesus. The men wanted to bring him, but there were so many people there Verse 19, finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof of the house. And then, you know, these Galilean houses were smaller than ours. Some of them were thatched. Some of them were tiled. And this one was a tiled roof. They started digging out the tile. They made a big enough hole. So you can imagine Jesus is teaching. And all, all of this plaster is falling. Like, what's going on, man? Is there a Galilean earthquake? And then all of a sudden, lowered this guy, this lame man, is lowered right in front of Jesus. And so Jesus saw him. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? It's funny, Jesus attributes this man's brokenness, his lameness, his inability to walk to sin. It's I was reading a book last month by C.S. Lewis, and he says that we are so immersed in sin that we have never tasted anything without its taint. He kind of made this illustration that there are these good apples, but then these wild apples, and these, these bad people took the wild apples and started growing them, and they started growing like wildfire everywhere. And now every meal has those wild apples in it. And we've never tasted anything without it. We have never seen this earth without seeing through a glass darkly. Sin invades every thought, every action. Nobody's perfectly pure. It taints everything. And it's the reason this man was lame. It breaks everything. It's death working itself out. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. But this raises a lot of questions of the Pharisees. Look at verse 21 again. The Pharisees say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And in a way, they're right. Their theology is right, but their Christology is dead wrong. 
Theology is a study of God. Christology is a study of the person of Christ. They know about God. They don't know about Jesus. Because they really don't know who Jesus is. And their dilemma is the Psalm 51.4 dilemma. Psalm 51.4 says, against you only, God. This is David and Bathsheba. But that sin, that adultery, he goes, really this sin? It's against God, primarily. David said, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So sin at its core, sin at its core is trespassing against God's holy character and his design for man. So the Pharisees are right. If sin at its core is a rebellion and offense against God, nobody can forgive but God alone. Nobody can. So for instance, if I steal from you, and my wife comes up to you and says, just forgive him. I'll tell him you forgave him. I told him you you not have a problem with it. You'll be like, wait, I never gave him permission. I want that money back. Well, I told him he's forgiven. I, I you know, I took the I took your position and I told my husband, it's all right that you stole from him. It's forgiven. But you can't forgive something that somebody else is responsible for. Or you can't forgive for the person who's been offended. He's the only one who can forgive. So if God's the only one we've offended, he's the only one that can forgive sins. So when people these days tell you sin's no big deal, they have no right to say that. They're speaking for God, and he never gave them the right to speak for him. So when you, when you hear people say, yeah, you can get to heaven with other religions, they, people have no right to speak for God. Did you understand? I heard this. Mike Whitmer told this illustration. He goes, let's say my dad is a car dealer and I sell cars for him. And he's selling, let's say he's selling a new car for $40,000. Let's say my friend comes in and he wants to buy it for twenty. dollars And since I'm his friend, I'll be like, I'll cut you a deal, $25,000. So I go back to my dad and I say, Dad, I sold the car for $25,000. He goes, who told you you could do that? Well, I like that guy. He's my friend. I never gave you the right to do that. In a sense, when somebody says Muhammad's okay or Buddha's okay, who gave them the right to say that? Nobody. God says, if you sin, you die. That's the deal. So when the Pharisees say, uh, verse 24, you know, Actually, it's verse 21. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right. But Jesus, in verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? He's, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird conversation. I'm not going to go into it. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. That means the sin that caused the lameness he's He's taking care of it. He has the right to forgive. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God, representing that Jesus had the right to forgive sins. How can Jesus forgive sins? Because he used the title in there. You see the title he used? It's in verse 24. It's his favorite title. Son of Man. See that title, Son of Man? That means he's not only one with us, but he's referring back to Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 7. Verse 
Daniel's right after Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. So Daniel's given a vision. And he said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, from the Ancient of Days, was given something. The Son of Man, from the Ancient of Days, was given something. He was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is the one who received all authority from the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? Jehovah. Who's the Son of Man? For a long time, nobody really knew. They knew it kind of related to the Messiah, but then this guy steps up and he says, I'm the son of man. I'm the son of man. And I have all authority. Because God gave it to him. Because Jesus is not just the father's son. He's also equal with the father. In essence, he's God. He's God. The person before, standing before them is the one who stands in front of the ancient of days and has given all authority. And to prove it, the man immediately rose up, picked up his mat, and went home. So when the Son of Man decides to act on your sin, everything is forgiven. Everything changes. I know so many people who say, yeah, but I've sinned and I keep doing the same sin, but I've asked Jesus to forgive me, but every time I sin, so he's probably going to condemn me again. No, if we confess our sin, if we confess our sin, Confession means I agree with God how hideous my sin is. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. Justice means he already paid for it on the cross, so he already, he already crucified his son for it, so he's just. He's faithful. That means he's promised that he won't do double jeopardy, try you again. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. He will forgive us our sin. And he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I've used this illustration a number of times, but I love it. It's the best one. And it's my, it's my father's hanky illustration. You probably, how many of you heard this hanky illustration? How many have not heard the hanky illustration? All right, good. I have some. All right, Marlene, I'll tell you. All right, so my dad, my dad would wear sport coats when he'd work like this. And he'd always pull out a hanky. And that hanky was the hanky that he just got blowing his nose on. You know, that rotten is wet. It's always wet. And it's that hanky when my nose was, he'd pull it out and wipe my nose. So it's double wet, you know. My dad would throw that hanky. The hanky was rotten. Like, yuck. Yeah. My dad would throw the hanky in the washer. My mom would wash it with Clorox. Put some April Fresh stuff in there as well. Then they'd put it, she'd put it in the dryer. And it would tumble in the dryer. And it'd come out warm. My mom would take that hanky, put it on the ironing board, iron it, fold it, iron it, fold it, iron it, put it back into his drawer. That hanky was, it was gross, but it was cleansed, and it 
was made righteous again. Our sin is gross. But when I go to Jesus, the Son of Man, who's been given all authority and power to speak on behalf of God, and he says I'm forgiven, he cleanses me and he makes me brand new. The question is for you, is do you believe it? See, because if you go to the next slide, both in the first story and the second story, the man said, I believe you will forgive me if you're willing. In the second story, these four men bring him down. And he says, your faith has healed you. So the question is, do you believe he can heal you? But even before you get to that point, I think you have to ask this question. Is my sin really that bad? I don't think you'll get to forgiveness until you really believe your sin's that bad. And I have one final story for you. It's a story told by Malcolm Muggeridge, and the first time I heard it, it shocked me to my core. Malcolm Muggeridge was this guy that worked in BBC over in England. And one time he said he, said he was just swimming on this, he was out on vacation, he's swimming on this island, had a big lake in it. And as he's swimming, he's just lying on his back, shooting some of the water out. And he kind of puts the water in his hair, and he looks across the lake, and he notices across the lake, there's a bunch of women over there swimming. But he noticed when they're swimming, they're taking off their clothes. And he's, man, I want to see that. He's looking around. His wife's not there. His friends aren't there. So he kind of starts backstroking back that way. And he, his lust takes over. And he just can't wait to see that. There's like three or four women in there swimming on the other side. And as he's getting closer, he's looking, you know, and they're underneath the water and they're laughing a little bit, but their, but their speech is kind of garbled, is weird. Then he floated nearby, waiting for them to finally get out of the water, and when these four women got out of the water, one of them didn't have an arm and a leg. The other one had no face. They were lepers, and their body was completely deformed, and they could barely talk. They just gurgled, and he said, in that moment, he realized that was the picture of the lust that was driving him. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. It was so hideous, he said he recoiled back and he, he just could not stop getting that out of his mind and how that really was an example of what was in his heart. Until you see, if you don't see sin that way, I don't think you're going to ask for forgiveness. But do you really believe that that sin you've been committing is that hideous? Ah, God will, God will forget about it. No, it's leprosy. It's leprosy. It's not a lifestyle choice. It's not just an oops. And it's just not, a, as Derek says, a pet. Little pet I have in my pocket. It's a disease. And I would ask God to just help you really believe that. Jared's going to come up and sing a song. I'm going to close. I'm going to pray for us and then stand after we pray. Father, I just pray that um, you'll just help us to take this story to heart. Help us chew and gnaw on it. And God, just provoke our hearts. In Christ's name.